You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're uh, back in the book of Philippians. All right, we're going to be looking at what I call the emptying of Jesus from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. And really, this passage can be divided up into two sections. The first section is the person of Jesus, and the second section that we're going to be looking at, or the second part of this passage, is the work of Jesus. Paul begins in verse 5, where he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So what we see here is that Paul models the way we ought to live as servants, those who humble ourselves and love others after what Jesus did. And specifically what he's doing is he is casting our minds back to Jesus' earthly ministry in his life, as an example. He says that Jesus was made in human likeness. Now, this isn't very controversial today. Most people believe that Jesus was a human being. Even the most skeptical scholars agree that Jesus was a historical figure on earth. And so, when you look at Jesus... There are elements of his life that are a little bit confusing, and yet it's very clear that he was a human being. And yet, one of the claims that the Bible makes is that Jesus was indeed God. Yet, when you look at his life in the Gospels, you'll notice there are some things that don't seem to line up with somebody being God. For example, you think about the quality of omnipotence, that is, God is all-powerful. And then you look at Jesus' life, and you'll notice things like in John chapter 4, verse 6, that Jesus was tired from a long walk. God doesn't get tired, right? His power and his energy is inexhaustible. Think about Mark chapter 4, verse 38. It says that Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat as there was this storm raging. And yet what we see is that in Psalm 121, that God declares that the one who watches over Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. What about Mark chapter 6 verse 5, where Jesus could do no miracle in this place because the people didn't have faith? Again, something that you would not think of when you are trying to imagine God. What about the quality of omniscience? That is, God is all-knowing. Again, we see some things in the Gospels that seem to contradict this fact about Jesus' life. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says that um, he grew in knowledge and stature. So how, how how does God grow in wisdom? He knows everything that you could possibly know. Or think about Matthew 24, verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the Son, but Father only. Apparently, there were things that were hidden from Jesus that only God the Father knew. 
Again, this doesn't seem to line up with him being omniscient. Finally, we see that Jesus was not omnipresent. He wasn't everywhere all at once, which is what God claims of himself in the Bible. Think about John 4.4. He had to pass through Samaria. God doesn't have to do anything. He's everywhere at the same time, all at once. Now, when we look at God's divinity or Jesus's divinity, that's a different story. Most people accept the idea that Jesus was in fact a human being, a historical figure. But then when we start talking about Jesus actually being God, I think that's where people start to scratch their heads with a little bit of skepticism. You think about people like Bart Ehrman, a skeptic of the Bible and a scholar of the Bible. And what he would tell you is that Jesus was an important historical figure. And yet one of the things you'll notice is that his disciples hundreds of years later started to attribute to Jesus divinity because they wanted to extol him to a higher place than he actually occupied in his earthly ministry. And I think a lot of people today believe the same thing, that Jesus was probably a good teacher. He was an influential figure of his time and still continues to influence us today. But Jesus certainly wasn't God. More than that, the Bible never actually says that Jesus is God. And you have right here a statement where Paul is saying that Jesus was divine. He says, Jesus was in the very nature God. In Greek, that's the word morphe. And you think about morphology, that is, you know, character, uh, categorization, understanding the form of something. And so right here, we have a direct statement of Jesus' divinity. And really, if you, if you study the New Testament, you'll find dozens of passages where either Jesus is claiming divinity or people are treating him as if he's God, or you'll see the New Testament writers speak of Jesus as if he's God. Think about Colossians 2 verse 9 where it says that Jesus uh, embodied God in bodily form. Even in our own passage, if you look a few verses down to verse 9 through 11, Paul says, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. And he says, at that, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you look at your Bible in the footnote, you'll notice that Paul is actually quoting an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 45, verse 23. And in it, Isaiah is talking to God, and God speaks directly to Isaiah in verse 22 in the context saying, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Then he goes on to say in verse 23 and 24, Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, I am the Lord alone and are righteous and in strength. So anytime you encounter in the Old Testament, Lord 
spelled capital L-O-R-D, that is in reference to God's personal name, Yahweh. So this is an unmistakable reference to God, Yahweh, speaking to the nation of Israel. And Paul is attributing this passage to Jesus, saying that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is indeed God, Yahweh. So the Bible does speak of Jesus as if he's God. Now, some might ask, how could Jesus be God when he didn't possess the divine qualities of God? The the question still remains. Well, our passage tells us in verse 7 that Jesus made himself nothing. Some translators actually translate this that he emptied himself, which gives sort of the impression that Jesus became something less than God by becoming human. In other words, by taking on humanity, it was a subtraction of his divinity. And yet, one of the things that we are told that Scripture declares is that God, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And that by taking on humanity, he was taking on the limitations of humanity And that he did not enjoy the possessions of his divine powers and privileges. One way to maybe translate this that helps us understand this in the context is that instead he set aside his divine privileges and powers. That he temporarily laid those aside, the the temporary use or utility of those powers by taking on humanity. And Paul explains that it was because he took on the nature of a servant, that is, becoming in human likeness, that he emptied himself. And so therefore, it was equality with God, not the form of God, of which Jesus emptied himself. And these limitations weren't the result of a a loss of divine powers, but the addition of human qualities. So it was by taking on these limitations of humanity that Jesus was unable to express his divine qualities. Now, again, a skeptic might say or ask, how can someone possess divinity and yet be limited? Good question. Now, maybe an illustration will help. Think about somebody like Usain Bolt. Arguably, the fastest human being alive today. Usain Bolt, in 2009, broke the world record in the 100 and 200, and his record still stands today. For those of you guys who are like football uh, fans, just this last year, during the Super Bowl, Usain Bolt decided to run the 40-yard dash, just for kicks, just for fun. He ran a 4-2-2-40, which is the, he basically tied the record for the 40-yard dash. And he did it wearing sweatpants and a pair of suede pumas. Okay? Now, imagine if Usain Bolt, the fastest man in the world, 
decided to enter into a three-legged race with somebody. His capabilities would be severely limited by the confines of that competition, right? Even if he paired up with the second fastest person in the world, he still would be incredibly slow. Think about another example. For example, you have Muhammad Ali, arguably the greatest boxer in history, right? Imagine if Muhammad Ali in his famous fight against George Foreman in the thriller of Manila decided that he was going to compete with one arm tied behind his back. If he decided to do that, if he actually submitted to that, George Foreman's book wouldn't be called Knocking Out the Fat. So when you think about these two, these two people, right? Somebody like Muhammad Ali, a great boxer, or Usain Bolt, a great runner. You know, at any time, they could have thrown off the limitations that they imposed upon their, themselves and they would be able to exert the full power and athleticism that they possess. In the same way, Jesus, was he self-imposed uh, upon himself the limitations of humanity, which prevented him, at least in the meantime, while he was on earth, from expressing his divine powers. And so really, it wasn't a subtraction of the divine qualities when he put on humanity, but the addition of humanity that limited him. Now, when we think about what Jesus must have gone through, the condescension of putting on human flesh must have been immense for him. You know, Jesus experienced the humiliation of leaving his rightful place of exaltation. Jesus spent all of eternity past with God the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship with the constant praise of the angels and he came down to earth. You know, if Jesus came to earth and occupied the greatest position of splendor and glory on earth, even that would have been an immense, you know, downgrade from where he was. Even the greatest riches or the most prominent political position would not describe the magnitude of his descent, the immensity of it. And it's really hard for us to comprehend this because obviously we have never been to heaven. We don't understand the kind of glory that he experienced before he put on human flesh. Not only that, we see that Jesus was born into a poor Jewish family at a time when Israel was under Roman control. Jesus wasn't born into a Roman or a, a royal family or a place of prestige. Jesus was born as a Jewish person. Arguably, the Jewish people have experienced more persecution, more subjugation, more mistreatment than any other race ever in history. Not to mention, we see that Jesus was born into an incredibly poor family. He was born in what would be the equivalent of a horse's stable today, in a feeding trough. 
And that continued throughout his life and ministry. We're told that in the gospel, somebody actually came to Jesus and said, Lord, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, you better count the cost because you know what? The son of man, he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Not to mention, Jesus faced constant persecution and injustice throughout his ministry and his life. The religious leaders sought to kill him unjustly just because he was speaking the truth, the word of God. And this ultimately ended in his unjust death on the cross. Can you imagine what this must have been like for Jesus to come to earth and take on all of these limitations and be mistreated by the people whom he loved and was trying to help? At any time, he could have just thrown off this disguise. He could have thrown off humanity. He could have called upon a legion of angels to come and save him. And yet he didn't do that. Because he endured shame and death for us. Now, this word being, it's kind of interesting. And I'm not trying to get esoteric here. But this word is a circumstantial participle in Greek. Which some of you are like, hmm, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> now, Greek translators actually have a difficult time translating this because you can translate it a couple different ways. A circumstantial participle means that the circumstance or the context sort of determines how you ought to interpret it. So maybe an example would help. Think about this statement. Being an Ohio State football fan... We predict that our team will win the national championship. And so in this case, this circumstantial participle means being talks about or expresses cause, right? What we're really saying is because we are Ohio State football fans, we predict that our team will win the title. It's precisely because we are fans that we predict that they're going to win the national championship. Think about this statement. Being a Chicago Bears fan, I predict that they will win the Super Bowl. Okay? This is the concessive way to actually interpret this. And really what this means is, despite being a delusional Chicago Bears fan, I predict that they will win the Super Bowl. So now take this then and then apply it to our passage one way to read this is that who, in spite of being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, Jesus made himself nothing by becoming in the very nature of a servant. In other words, it was in spite of the fact that he was God that he became a servant. Another way to read this is that Jesus, who because he was in the very nature of God, Precisely because he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. You know, when you think about Greek mythology, there are these stories where Zeus and Hermes put on the disguise of humanity and come to spy out the freedom of human beings. They're trying to find out how much human beings are 
extolling them. And as soon as they get their information, what do they do? They throw off their disguise and show themselves in all of their Olympian glory. And so for them, putting on humanity, becoming a servant was a disguise. And yet what we see is that if we take it to be that it was because it was in the very nature of God to be a servant, then that implies that God in Jesus did not take on the outward form of a servant. Instead, he he wasn't disguising who God is. He was actually revealing who God is. That he was a servant by nature in his very character. I've heard some Christian teachers say things like, pride is forbidden for human beings, but it's okay for God. Because after all, he's God. I disagree with that. I believe that God is the infinite servant. Jesus didn't come as a servant in spite of being God. He came as a servant because he is God. You know, what you would predict from God is that he wouldn't serve anyone, that he would just simply command people to follow him and do his bidding. And yet what we see of Jesus is something totally different. He manifested who God was in John chapter 13 when he took off his outer clothing and girded himself and washed his disciples' feet as a servant. He demonstrated his character when he hung on a cross and died for the human race. It's in the very nature of God to be a servant. And that's why he says your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Surprisingly, this concept, which is very difficult to wrap our minds around, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, and that he took on humanity, that even though that's a very complex thing, that the application is very straightforward. Paul says, look at Jesus' life And have the same attitude. And he elaborates on what that should look like in verse 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Interesting that he doesn't say just ambition. He says selfish ambition. That's partly because not all ambition is selfish or bad. God has created us to work, to accomplish, to have ambition in our lives. And by sitting around and being apathetic or listless, we're actually doing the opposite of what God designed us for. And yet when we take a selfish, ego-driven approach to ambition, it leads to rivalry. And that's exactly what was happening in the Philippian church. We see in Philippians chapter 4 that Euodia and Syntyche, these two prominent women, were fighting with one another, largely because there was rivalry between them. Or think about some of the Roman believers and leaders who were there before Paul came to prison in Rome. And we're told that Paul mentions that, that they were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition to compete with Paul. And so when we see ambition that is turned selfish, it it creates competition and rivalry that damages and destroys relationships. 
Also, he says, vain conceit. Vain conceit describes a preoccupation with the way you look and the way you make impressions on others. If you ever exercise with spandex, ever, it's likely you have this problem. <laughs> now, I'm, listen, I'm not throwing any stones here. I'm a cyclist, so I actually wear Lycra all the time, okay? So... We all have problems. <laughs> Actually, I remember uh, I, was, uh, I'm, I went to Ireland a few years ago, and this woman asked me, she's like, so what are your hobbies? I said, well, cycling. And she said, oh, so you're a mammal. I was like, what? She's like, you know, a middle-aged man in Lycra. <laughs> and I was kind of offended but I knew it was kind of true. <laughs> you know, when you think about selfish ambition and vain conceit, what we're talking about here really is an overestimation of our value and our importance. And that's why Paul says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. When you think about humility, what does humility mean? It doesn't mean being self-deprecating right? Because humility means having a sane or a realistic perspective about who you are. It's seeing yourself as you really are. And so when we fall into self-deprecating behavior and talk about how terrible we are or undervalue who we are, that's the opposite of humility. And yet, we're also not saying that people are actually better than us, right? Jesus was humble, and yet he was greater than every human being who's ever lived. What he's talking about here when he says, consider others better than yourselves, is that each person should look not to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. That considering others better than yourselves means that you are looking out for people and how you can love and serve them instead of living selfishly. Well, the second thing that we want to look at here is the work of Jesus. So we looked at the person of Jesus. Now Paul talks about the work of Jesus, which is being found in human appear in appearance as a man, Jesus emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So the major mission that Jesus accomplished, the, the work that he accomplished here on earth, the reason that God actually sent him here was to come and die on a cross. And I think people ask questions like, why did Jesus need to die, right? Couldn't God simply just forgive us for the things that we've done wrong? Why did he need to go through all of this in order to forgive us? I think the first thing I would say to this is the problem of sin. The Bible talks about this thing called sin, which is really confusing. But the Greek word that the Bible uses is the word harmatia or hamartia. And this word simply means to miss the mark. It's kind of like when an archer shoots an arrow and is just slightly off the bullseye. In the same way, God says that when we 
commit moral wrongdoing, we're missing the mark. And this implies that God demands a standard far beyond what we would put on ourselves. That he actually demands perfection from us. Now, you might say that's impossible. Nobody can live a perfect life. And yet, when you think about the alternative, what if God arbitrarily said, listen, this is the way that you get into heaven. Just make sure that you don't commit anything above, I don't know, 1 billion and 32 sins in your life. You'd say, well, what about if I committed 1 billion and 33? I mean, why is that the line? Well, it isn't the line, according to God. According to God, the line is his perfect moral character, that he sets his standard by his perfect character. And therefore, when we do things that violate his perfect moral character, we fall short of the standard that he sets. And so what do you do then if you fall short of God's standard? How are you supposed to react to that? I think one way that you could go is to simply ignore God's standards and live the way that you want. The other way would be maybe to try to live a really good life, to try to avoid sin in your life and hope that maybe God will say, you know, you were good enough. I'll let you in. Flannery O'Connor, the famous writer, says, one of the best ways to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. You see, when we decide we want to do good things by avoiding sin and trying to make ourselves good enough for God, we really reveal that we look at Jesus as a good teacher, as a good example, somebody that we should follow, but we are avoiding him as our Savior. Because we're not trusting in what he has done for us to forgive us. We're trusting in our own personal goodness to try to find entrance into heaven. Tim Keller says it's possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. Both religion in which you build your identity on your moral achievements and irreligion in which you build your identity on some pursuit or relationship are ultimately spiritually uh, identical courses. Both are sin. Because you're avoiding Jesus, God's provision for salvation. Now, the other response I would have to this question, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't he simply forgive us? Would be real forgiveness is costly suffering. You know, imagine one of your roommates says, hey, my car's in the shop. Can I borrow your car to go to Kroger? So you're like, sure. And as your roommate is backing out of the parking space, she runs into a pole. And because you're a poor college student and you got a 2008 Honda Civic, you've got liability insurance and it's not covered. So what do you do in that situation? right? You have a couple different options. One is that you make your roommate pay for the damage or you absorb the damage yourself and say, you know what? You don't have to pay for this or maybe some sort of middle ground. But the point is that somebody has to pay for the damage, right? Somebody has to absorb that in themselves. And in the same way, when we think about forgiveness, it's costly, It requires suffering. 
You know, if we decide to go the route of making the person pay for what they've done, there's sort of a a satisfaction in that, isn't there, right? And, And in this example, we're talking about something that has financial value, but a lot of times people wrong us in ways that are much more painful than financial loss, such as a loss of reputation, a loss of opportunity. And so what we can do is we can try to make that person pay. We can confront them and and say things that are harsh to hurt their feelings. Or maybe what we can do is we can try to tarnish their reputation as we talk negatively about them to other people. And there's sort of a sweet satisfaction that comes from making that person sort of pay the debt that they owe you, right? And yet, obviously, there are some negatives to this as well. And in doing so, we might end up hardening our hearts. Our hearts might grow cold. We might actually grow more self-absorbed. That this cycle of reaction and retaliation can actually go on for years. And so that's one option. The other one is that you can forgive. That you can say, I am going to absorb in myself the damage that you have done. And one of the things that's really tough about this is that you don't really get the sweet consolation of making that person pay for the thing that they have done wrong to you, right? That, that, and really, that's a form of suffering when you think about it. The inability to, to make that person pay. And so when we talk about forgiveness, it's a form of suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, everyone who forgives, someone bears the, the, the other person's sins. And so forgiveness is a form of suffering. So when we go back to this question, why did Jesus need to die? Couldn't God simply forgive us? It makes sense to us then to see that God had to suffer in order to forgive us because he needed to absorb in himself the guilt and penalty that we deserve to pay. Now, I want to end with an illustration that sort of helped crystallize this for me. As a non-Christian person, I remember being very skeptical about Christianity, and this question was one of the things that really held me back from taking the next step of placing my faith in Jesus. And I remember reading in this book an illustration of a righteous judge There was this righteous judge who lived in, you know, a rural area. And this judge was renowned for his justice. Anytime some property was damaged or stolen, they needed to pay restitution equivalent to what they had stolen or damaged. If a life was taken, a life had to be taken in its place. And so this judge was incredibly fair, incredibly just, And one day as he's sitting in his courtroom, the next case that that is on his bench is a murder case, vehicular homicide. And as the double doors of the courtroom open, he can see the outline of the next uh, defendant walking in. And as the defendant walks into the light, he recognizes and sees that it's his own son. 
Now, obviously, this is where the illustration would break down. I mean, most, most of the time, the, the judge would recuse himself in that case. But imagine if they went through all of the evidence, they went to trial, and it was very clear that, that the son had committed this crime. The judge was really, would be in a, a weird dilemma, right? On the one hand, he needed to maintain justice. And yet on the other hand, he loves his son and does not want to see him lose his life. And so the town, the small town, were obviously talking about what the judge would do. Would he sentence his son to death because he's guilty? Or would he let him go and be unjust? And so finally, when the verdict came, the judge slams the gavel down and says, guilty is charged. And of course, the entire courtroom just erupts. And as they are all talking, the judge slowly walks down to the floor of the courtroom and the crowd quiets down and he says, I will pay the penalty my son deserves to pay. I will die in his place. And really, this is the picture of what God has done for us. Paul puts it succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 where he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's draw a few points of application. I think the first thing is that God took on humanity in the man Jesus Christ. And what this implies for us is that God can identify with what you have gone through in your life and what you're currently going through. Jesus experienced all of those things so that he can identify with you. You know, are you from a single parent home? A broken home? So is Jesus. Were you ever bullied or humiliated in your life? So was he. Have you ever felt intense fear or anxiety? So did Jesus as he faced the cross. Did you grow up in poverty? So did he. Have you ever suffered pain and injustice? So did Jesus. Have you ever seen a loved one suffer and die? Jesus did as well. You see, all the things that we have experienced in life, Jesus can identify. He can understand what you're going through. You see, unlike other gods of different world religions, the God of the Bible is not indifferent to our suffering. He's not detached from our world. He entered into our world and into our suffering so that he could identify with us. The second thing is that God humbled himself to identify with us and to die for us. Which means that God modeled a pattern of humility and a life of servanthood that he wants you to follow. And he sets the bar real high. Humility, 
servanthood, laying down your life for other people like he did. And that's really the essence of the Christian life. It's about loving others. It's about serving. It's about putting aside our own agenda and our ego and loving other people just like what Jesus did. And finally, Jesus suffered the cross so that you can experience God's forgiveness. He did this because he loves you. If you're here tonight and you have never placed your trust in Jesus to forgive you for the things that you've done wrong, for your sins, God wants to know you to know that he loves you and that he has gone to great lengths to forgive you. Now it's up to you to turn to him and say, I want what you did to apply to me. And you can do that tonight. As we turn to God tonight and talk to him in your heart, you can just turn to God and express in your own words how you want him to enter into your life. There you have Philippians 2, the emptying of Jesus. We're so happy to serve a God who doesn't just command us to serve and love, but has shown us through the man Jesus that you paved the way for us in the life that you want us to live, that you've shown us what true dependence on you looks like in a life of self-sacrifice should look like and the kind of joy that we can experience by following you. I pray for those of us here tonight, Lord, who have never taken the first step in following you by receiving the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus. I pray that in their hearts that they would just turn to you right now and receive the, the gift that you offer. And um, I know when I did that many, many years ago, that that was a life-altering moment for me where you not only gave me salvation, but also an incredibly joyful and fruitful life. We thank you that you're a good God who wants to give us good things. And we say this all in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.